you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open to the book of Romans. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you know that we have begun a, a series um, in this uh, uh, magnificent uh, book uh, that was originally written as a missionary support letter, uh, but turned out to be the most profound theological treatise that God has given to humanity, uh, explaining to us about God, about ourselves, and answering the questions of what is wrong in the world, and therefore, what is the hope of the world itself? This morning, we are picking up um, in verses 18 through 32. We took three weeks to do the introduction, and then we're going to do the rest of the chapter in one week. Uh, But the caveat that has been offered every single week will be offered again today. This is a passage that is so packed that we couldn't possibly... Uh, delve into every detail in the way that we would like, um, but we will touch on it and hopefully faithfully give us uh, opportunity to look at it and then explore it more on our on our own. Uh, our passage this morning again, beginning our reading in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not, to to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy God, we do come to you. We've praised you in song. We pray to you acknowledging your sovereignty, that you do what we cannot and that we must find our rest in you. And now we honor you by giving ear to your word. 
pray that your spirit would speak to us, that you would shape us and our minds according to your word, that we would not merely be informed by your word, but formed by it in our minds and therefore in our lives in every respect. Lord, bless us this morning by speaking, even bless us by revealing to us our own brokenness and waywardness, that we might experience the joy of your grace that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And may we see the necessity of him, even as we consider this text that you have recorded for us today. We pray all in the name of Christ Jesus, who is in himself the word incarnate. Amen. You've heard the jokes. Dad, good news. The airbags in your brand new Mercedes work great. The doctor comes in to give you the test results, and he says, I've got good news for you. You're going to live on in posterity. We're going to name a brand new terminal disease after you. People have to think. You know, the old, I've got good news, bad news, jokes for you. Well, give me the bad news. They give you the bad news. Then what's the good news? I lied. I, I don't have any good news. I couldn't help but thinking about that as I was studying this passage, uh, not only this past week, but for uh, the past several weeks. Because I don't know if you noticed, as we were reading through this passage this morning, there is no good news in it. Uh, there are some good things that are in there, but anything that seems to be good is immediately overshadowed by something that is not good news if we were to take this passage at its face value and not read into it things that have either come before or things that are come after it. There is no good news in this text. There is good news in the context, but there is no good news in this text. Because here in this particular passage, Paul begins a, a three-part demolition of all of the human race. Here he is particularly addressing the Gentiles, the religious outsiders, those who um, essentially become a religion uh, to themselves. They, they trust in themselves. They may practice various forms of religion, but they, they, are, they are not, certainly not Jews. They are not moral according to the, the culture of, of their time. Um, and he is addressing them and demonstrating to them what is wrong in the world and what is wrong with the way of their thinking. Uh, but if you read a little bit further, the very next passage, Paul moves from the religious outsiders to the religious insiders, to the moralists. In, a, in the passage that Ken Bush will pick up next week, he says to those who are religious and immoral and looking at these foolish people who deny that there is a God, and he said, you're no better. You do the same things. And then in the passage that he picks up after that, that Camper's going to pick up, he particularly targets those who would consider themselves religious, who are trusting in their religious practices and their obedience and their, 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 their goodness and their, their faithfulness to their faith as if they somehow are able to sit above the foolishness of the others that are addressed. And so for the next two chapters, the Apostle Paul is somewhat like Rambo with a machine gun mowing down every pretense of self-righteousness of all of humanity. There is no one who is left standing 
by the time he is done. And so that by the time he gets to Romans 3.10, he says very bluntly, there is no one who is righteous. There is none. Everyone is wiped out. It's a hard passage. But it's an important passage. Because it's only against the backdrop of the darkness, of the reality of our hearts and of our world, do we see clearly the beauty and the glory and the power of the good news, which we spent three weeks talking about as Paul introduced this letter. The good news of the gospel itself. There is good news. It's as if a doctor did come in and say, look, I've got a plan and I'm up to the task. And here's what you need and here's what we're going to do. But nobody would submit themselves to a surgery who didn't think there was something broken within them. Nobody would endure a chemo regimen if they didn't think they had cancer. No one sees the glory and the necessity of the gospel unless they recognize their own brokenness and their own sin. And Paul, knowing that, and our own propensity for religiosity, for people to say, okay, just give me the rules, and I'll follow the rules, at least so far as I want to, and then I'll be declared good. And then there are even some of us who go a step further, who almost, you know, poker, you know, I'll see your Ten Commandments, and I'll raise you another ten. I'll, I'll keep commandments that are even more strenuous than that. But in so doing, they misunderstand the very basic nature of their condition. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to do so, I'm going to look at it in a, in a threefold lens, trifocals. The first thing that we're going to see is that there is truth. The second thing that we need to see is that we are responsible for how we relate to that truth. And the third thing that we need to see is that there are consequences for failing to walk in that truth. And so again, what I believe is, is the first and maybe the only good news in the passage, at least taken by itself, is that there is truth. The scripture speaks about that. And this passage tells us that God is that truth and that all truth flows from him. We see that in the very first verse that we looked at is that it refers to the people that were suppressing the truth, but it was about that truth is about God because he goes on in the very next statement and says, because what is plain to be, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has revealed it to them. So from the very first thing is God has revealed himself. Therefore, God has revealed truth. And so we look at this and very simply, we would need to be reminded there is a God who has revealed himself, and we are able to know that there is a God because of what he has made. And, and Paul goes on, and he says something that is a beautiful truth that we benefit from if we are to walk with God and to be renewed and regularly infused by uh, God's presence in our lives. Can be known about God has been made plain because God has embedded it in the creation. The creation that we see 
speaks to us of certain characteristics of God, particularly his divine majesty, his power. These things are plain to us. And so that when you go to various places that you uh, enjoy, the things that make you stop and say, wow, the natural instinct then is to recognize there is a God who is a creator. Theologians refer to that as general revelation, that God has revealed himself, and we, we see through beauty that God is beautiful. We see through the power of the sea or the power of the storm that God who created those things is, is powerful. We see certain aspects of God who is greater and who has expressed himself through the creation of these things. It is distinct from what we call special revelation, which is the plan of salvation, which is what Paul is laying a foundation for us to understand. But it's potent nevertheless. Special revelation speaks of the plan that God has in sending his son to redeem a people, to be forgiven of their sins, be reconciled with him, to be empowered, to walk with him, and to live not only in eternity, but to live in this life with the presence of God moment by moment. And it's important that we are clear about that distinction. What Paul's talking about here is not to say, well, because it's a creation, everybody should know uh, about Jesus. But Paul is saying, because of creation, we should know there is a God. And we're left with an excuse about finding out who that God is. But the plan of salvation is something that must be articulated later. For instance, there's a, there's a place on the Tennessee-North Carolina border, known as Newfound Gap. It's about midway between Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and Cherokee Reservation in North Carolina. People travel from far and wide and even make detours in order to go up there and just spend a few minutes and look at the vista from the top of the mountains, and you see mountains that seem to roll like the ocean waves, except they don't move. It is absolutely glorious and breathtaking. And I go there often, and I've been there many, many times, and I've heard many people who seem to it must be there for the first time, but maybe they're not, and they look out over the view, and they are breathtaking, and they say, wow. And many times I've heard people talking about what God has created. But not once have I been up there and somebody who has looked at that and then said, wow, look at all of that. There must be a God who loves me because it, that doesn't testify to that. That requires us to understand how God has worked through Jesus Christ that he has loved, loved us. But what Paul is saying is we can know the attributes of God. We can know there is a God. And knowing there's a God then begs us. We have a need to get to know that God. And he says the attributes are so clear that we are left without excuse. And I think that that is true because even many who are not necessarily followers of Jesus seem to understand this. I started reading a couple of weeks ago a book that was recommended to me by a neurologist, Andrew Newberg, who I don't believe is a Christian, doesn't make any, any hint of that in, in his book. His book is titled, How God Changes Your Brain. And listen to the second sentence of what this non-believer, uh, or at least non-Christian, um, says. The second sentence in the book is this. Even young children raised in non-religious communities understand the concept of God 
and when asked will willingly draw you a picture, though usually of the proverbial old man with hair and a beard. But what he's saying is that embedded within us and because of simply living in this world where God has revealed himself through creation, even children not raised in the church, not raised in a religious environment, have a concept of God because of the way God has revealed himself. And so when Paul says it's been revealed, there is truth. Truth is God. God has revealed himself. We are all without excuse about seeking to know that God and what that God is like. Just as I said before, every good news in this passage is immediately overshadowed by bad news. The second thing we need to see here is that we are responsible for the way that we relate to that truth, the way that we relate to God. Paul says very clearly here in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And then if you look down into verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds animals and creeping things or creepy things since it's almost Halloween and Paul is saying here's the problem though God has revealed himself in all of creation to such a degree that you can know certain things about God to such an extent that we are without excuse here's what humanity has done we in our own hearts and our own minds decided not to honor God who has created all things and who has revealed it to himself. We decided that we would make ourselves God instead. And we then make things that we would offer our worship to, that we would allow to control our lives. But we are conscious most of the time that we're in control of those things. We're free to pick and choose as if uh, we can obey or disobey those things. In the very simplest ways, Paul is saying that the problem in the world are the hearts of man who do not want to recognize God as being God, but want something that is a little more controllable, something more in our control, something more to our taste, to our likeness. And then he says something that's interesting, and so in order to get there, we we exchanged, we exchanged the glory of God as it has been revealed for things that are mortal, things that are of little to no value. I started thinking about that idea of exchange. I began thinking back to my childhood. When I was a kid, I was into collecting baseball cards. Don't even know if they make baseball cards anymore. Um, but, you know, baseball cards were, had, had both benefit and, and value. They had benefit. You could put them in the spokes of your bike when you're, you know, six, seven years old. Uh, they make cool noises when you ride that way. And we would flip for them. In other words, there's different ways you could flip for them. You'd throw them up against the wall and you keep throwing. A whole group of people throw. And then as soon as one of your cards lands on somebody else's card, you take the whole pot. Or you could play a form of, of card game with them, you know, the match, different teams, whatever. You just go down like you're playing war and, with a deck of cards, and once you get the right match, one, you take the pile. Or you just did right, straight-out trades. 
You know, if you somebody else had a card that you wanted and you had a card that they wanted, you made an exchange. And just like you see in Major League Baseball now, sometimes you might have to trade five of your guys for somebody that you really wanted, or sometimes you were able to be the general manager to broker that deal, and you would get the five cards for the one guy. And I began, I remembered one of the deals that I, I brokered when I was a kid growing up in suburban Philadelphia. I had a, a, a Roberto Clemente card. I didn't care about the Pirates. I couldn't care less about Roberto Clemente. And a friend of mine had several of the Phillies that I liked. You know, immortals like Larry Boa and Bob Boone and Greg Lazinski. Willie Montanez. I mean, who can forget him? And so I traded a Roberto Clemente card, the last one before he died, for five Phillies. Now, I never got into, and I didn't collect them into the adulthood when people began using it as a business. But I was curious at one time. And my Roberto Clemente card that I traded away for five people that I preferred was worth a fair amount of money. Collectively, the five cards I got were probably worth what I paid for the bubblegum pack in the first place um, to get, uh, get them back. And then I began thinking, I could elaborate this on a little bit further. Imagine that it wasn't a Roberto Clemente card, which had value of its own, but imagine that somebody had given to me at that time an Honest Wagner card. Now, some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. Honest Wagner was a, 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 is a Hall of Fame baseball player from the early 1900s, even late 1800s, the early days of baseball. He also played for the Pirates. And what is most significant, even beyond his baseball career, is um, the card, his first card. that didn't come in bubblegum packs, but came in tobacco packages. And there were a limited number of the Honus Wagner packages because he didn't think it was a good idea for his image to be sold with tobacco. He used tobacco, but he didn't want kids picking up that habit. So he said, you need to cut this off. And so there were very few of these cards. And so these cards had tremendous, tremendous value. And so I was curious, and so I Googled it uh, this week just so the, for the point of the illustration, and I, I noticed that I saw that the, uh, the 1909 Honus Wagner card uh, sold in May of this year for $1.2 million. And then immediately was listed, if the guy wanted to sell it uh, immediately more, it was already worth double that because people wanted the card. Now imagine that I had been given that card of more money than I can imagine putting into my bank account. And then I exchanged that because, again, I wasn't a Pirates fan. And what is Wagner? It's a 1909 card. I'm old, but I'm not that old. I didn't ever see him play. And I wanted some of these other guys who were hot for the team that I was following at the time. I mean, people would recognize, what an idiot. You excuse it because, you know, a lot of young pubescent boys are idiots. You know, my, you know I was. My sons were. I assume if I have grandsons, they, they will be. The apples aren't going to fall far from the tree. But it's an illustration of the foolishness that Paul is talking about here. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God who has revealed himself for things. Images of people. And that itself is an interesting. It's not even exchanging for other people. It's not like you actually get Honus Wagner to play for your baseball team. You get the card. You get a picture. It'd be like I traded my Honus Wagner card 
for not even the cards of five guys whose cards would be worthless, but for photocopies of those cards, because it's the image of, of these things. We exchange the glory of the living God and decide we prefer the images of certain things that have the shelf life of the leftovers from your Labor Day picnic, which may still be in your refrigerator, but I'm betting you won't eat it. And we see the utter foolishness that Paul is describing of what humanity has done. Now, this is not just an abstract. This is certainly it's information. Paul is giving us information here about what's wrong. And again, this is the first part, and he's talking about people who are, who are uh, apart from God, who, who are not religious. And so it would be easy to say, okay, got that, know that, yeah, that's foolish, and anybody who does that, what a fool they are. But it's important that we understand this. What Paul is describing here is, simply put, is, is idolatry. And John Calvin, with his insights and his knowledge of people and knowledge of God, he, he at one of his writings, put, wrote something very simple. He said, our hearts, all of our hearts, are little, little idol facts. Every one of us has idols in which we are relating to. Maybe we try to relate to God through them. Maybe we empower them. Um, but our hearts value, find comforts, identity in certain things. Some of them are created things. Some of them are abstract things. An idol is anything that gives you your identity, its presence, gives you comfort, its absence causes you pain and discomfort. And Calvin is making the point that every one of us, even those of us who are believers, we sometimes function as if we are not believers. And our hearts are cranking out different things. Now, what my heart produces may be different than what your heart produces, both in the object and in the amount. But it is true for every one of us. And so I believe this passage begs for every one of us to ask ourselves what idols are being produced by my hearts. To be able to answer that question, maybe you fill in the blank here. If I only had blank, things would be okay. If I only had blank, then I would be content. Whatever that blank is, is likely to be an idol in your life. And as our hearts are cranking out these little idols, we need to recognize them because that idol is the thing that you are exchanging functionally, the glory of the immortal God for something that is of no ultimate value. It may be something good, but it is not of ultimate value. So we see Paul reminding us and revealing to us there is truth, God is the truth, and we are able to know him and know about him by what he has created. We have a responsibility to relate to him because we see that the issue is though they knew God, we knew God, didn't honor God, didn't want God to be God. We wanted a God more in line with 
our own thinking and our own values, and we therefore exchange. The bulk of this passage really is to remind us of this truth. There is a consequence for failing to walk in the truth. There's a consequence to our lives. First of all, we ask, what is the effect of idolatry, of making that foolish exchange? on the human heart. And we see some descriptive passes, verses here in this passage. Again, in verse 21, they become futile in their thinking. When we make that exchange, we become futile in our thinking. It doesn't mean we no longer think. and It doesn't mean we no longer have a high brain capacity. Some of the most intelligent people that have walked the face of this earth are also fools, according to what Paul is saying here. It, it's as if your brain was a computer and it continues to function at a higher level, except that you feed it with information that isn't pertinent to what you're wanting to know, or you withhold certain information from it and ask it to come up with a calculation. It is able to calculate and do everything that's supposed to do. It just doesn't come up with the right answer because it has not been given the proper data. And so they become futile in their thinking. And we see that all around us is brilliant, brilliant people pouring themselves out for things, making incredible discoveries, and yet it takes them on a path away from God, and sometimes even away from common sense truth. They become futile in their thinking. See also in verse 21 that goes along with that, their foolish hearts are darkened. In other words, the more we allow the futility of thinking apart from factoring in and based upon God's revelation of himself, his truth. It's not just that we become foolish, wrong in our thinking, therefore wrong in our behavior, but it has the effect of darkening our hearts. And the more our hearts are darkened, the less that we are open to light. It means we squeeze out more of what God has revealed about himself, and then we use our own imaginations in its place, which gets us further and further away from the blessing of walking with God more and more creating, participating in, and maybe even causing the brokenness in this world. If you look at this passage as a whole, you see later on certain words, but there are descriptors. There are two things that are happening here to the human soul, to the human heart, when idolatry has replaced God as the object of our affection and our authority. We become deceived, and we become enslaved. So the interesting thing is, is part of the purpose of idolatry is so that we feel like we are in control of something. We create things so that we can control them. But one of the spiritual realities that we find, Paul doesn't elaborate it on here, but the principle is present, is that that which we think we can control soon controls It's like the people who are so foolish as to buy a baby tiger as a pet because it's cute when it's a week old and then wonder why there's problems when it's a year old. That which you control ultimately really controls you and you become enslaved to it. And so that's the effect of the human heart. But even more than that, there's a consequence here in the passage that the passage even begins with, and that is 
that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So not only do we become deceived and foolish and futile in our thinking and our hearts become darkened, but when we make that exchange, the wrath of God is revealed. Now, I know that's not a popular subject in in a lot of, of circles. The whole idea that God would be a God of wrath. Some would say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament, as if there is something different. God has always been a, a God of love and a God of grace. The whole Bible is the plan of God to restore relationships with those who have rebelled against him. And he calls a people who weren't worthy, and he pours himself into it, constantly gives them grace and grace upon grace, and then reminds, even when you are faithless, he will remain faithful because he will not deny himself. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, though somehow we have this difficulty, partly because we don't know how to read our Bibles as a whole culture, and we think, well, that, the wrath. But now we have it here in the New Testament, and Paul's talking about the wrath of God. And many theologians of our day, many, I'll call them really bad theologians, they don't deserve to be theologians, but they're speculating about God, so that's the, 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 the discipline in which they're entering in, would say, this is just totally wrong. This is, Paul's either wrong, and so they reject what Paul has to say outright. A lot of people don't like Paul, um, but God liked Paul, so you know he, he used Paul to reveal himself to us, so whether you like Paul or not, you've got to listen to him. Paul uses this word wrath, and they say, well, Paul just must be wrong. Because, see, God is love. And if God is love, or at least God is most, above all else, he's mostly love. And if God is love, and if God is mostly love, that would eliminate any possibility that God would reveal and demonstrate wrath against people. And that notion has getting traction in our churches. One British theologian even talks about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the, the substitute that God would send his son to die on the cross on our behalf. He calls it cosmic child abuse. And then eliminates the whole necessity and even the whole action of it. Not that Jesus, not necessarily denying that Jesus died on the cross, but that God sanctioned that for our benefit, that somehow there's something wrong with the people that would find their peace and comfort in that, because there's something wrong with a God who would do that. And it's just absurd. And if you've heard that thinking, and, or if you're inclined to that thinking, I'll just say this. Jesus was no victim. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He volunteered. He is a child of this. But that mindset permeates that God, who is love, cannot exercise wrath. But I would suggest to you this morning that a God who does not exercise wrath is not a very loving God. Here's what I mean by that. Carolyn and I have begun watching the old TV series 24 on Prime. We're about 20 years too late. If there's a good show on now, we'll see it before we die. But anyway, um, and we ask, why didn't we watch this before? This is like the third series. It's 20 years late. Why did, we never saw an episode when it was actually on. We knew everybody else was watching it. We didn't watch it. And why didn't we watch it? I have no idea. But we're watching it now. And in the first season, early on, now if you're not familiar with, this, with, the, with the show, I won't give you too many you know, giveaways of things, but it's called 24 because every season takes place in 24 hours. Every episode is one hour in a day. But in the first season, the first day, 
Jack Bauer, the main character, who is a, 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 an agent with the FBI, the counter-terrorist unit, his daughter, and then ultimately later his wife, are, are kidnapped. His daughter is either going to be killed or trafficked. When he finds out about that, he spends the rest of the season um, chasing after and pouring out wrath on anybody who gets in his way of getting his daughter and his wife back. And the interesting thing is that people watch that show and continue to watch it and increase, and most people actually watched it when it was on, um, and you find yourself cheering for him as he's creating all sorts of havoc on anybody that gets between him and his daughter, anybody who is a threat to his family. And, and so he's wasting people left and right, and you find yourself cheering for him because instinctively you know that there is something righteous and something loving about pursuing the daughter. Trafficking a daughter is not what a daughter is for. And it would be incredibly unloving of him to say, ah, darn, he's got my daughter. They've got my daughter. Well, I can make another. They have your wife. Ah, well, that'll be a little harder to make a daughter, won't it? Well, I'll just get another wife. Another wife, another couple. I mean, if that was the plot line of the story, I assume most people wouldn't have watched it. It's not very exciting. It's horrendous. We don't identify with it because there's something incredibly unloving about that. But the fact that he would pour out his wrath, it's because he does love. And we need to understand that this passage, the book of Romans, is part of the explanation of God's rescue plan of people who belong to him, who have been hijacked, and who are now being abused and even taught to abuse themselves. And God, because he is loving, pours out wrath, has revealed his wrath on anyone who would hurt his people. People may say that God is all love. There's nothing lacking in God's love. God himself is the definition of love. He doesn't meet our expectation and then qualify as love. He is love, and we define love by what he has done. He's not love more than the other attributes, but there's nothing lacking in his love. And it's important that we understand that because this whole notion of being more compassionate than God, more loving than God, God who wouldn't pour out wrath, there are victims of heinous abuses in our culture who would not see God as loving if he looked at the perpetrators of that and saying, ah, no big deal. But I'll go a step further, and the wrath that God demonstrates here, for those who have a problem with the idea of God's wrath, the ultimate wrath is going to be exercised on the day of judgment. And now he has sent prophets, and he has sent ultimately his son, and now he has sent you, and he sent me to the world to remind one another and to declare to the world <laughs> there one day may be a wrath, but there is a way in, in, in Jesus but here in the text, the wrath that Paul describes he's poured out, what does that wrath look like? What does the wrath of God look like? It doesn't look like Jack Bauer. Here's how God exercises his wrath, according to Paul, in this passage. He lets people do what they want. 
we see three times in this passage, he gave them over to their own desires. Now, if you have a problem with the idea that God is wrath, and somehow his wrath is unfair, wrath is mean. God is saying to us, here's what I do. If this is what you want, fine. And then ultimately experience the destruction that he knows that leads to. It's not unlike a parent who says to their kid, you know, don't touch the stove, don't touch the stove. Kid touches the stove, you know. Most kids learn, all right, I won't touch the stove anymore. Every one of us who has gone down this path and experienced the pain and the brokenness and the hopelessness that a world apart from God offers, we then begin to pursue and hope for, and God reveals the hope that we have through the person of Jesus Christ. But anybody who persists in this is like a kid who then touches it and then wonders, okay, well, maybe next time it won't be a problem, and continues to go back and back and back and continues to touch. It's a life of misery and a life of pain. God's wrath is demonstrated first and foremost by just giving people over to their own desires, which then creates the dysfunction in the world, particularly when you live in a world or in a culture where that is the operating system that most people are operating according to their own desires rather than in conformity to the revealed truth of God. And we live in a culture that has plunged itself in that direction, and so we see more and more of the pain that is caused. God is saying to us that there is consequence for exchanging the glory of God for something that is of ultimate, little to no value. There is a part of this text that gets most of the attention. Because it gets most of the attention and because of the cultural circumstance in which we live, I feel I have to address it, even though it is not what this passage is primarily about. And that is homosexuality. And again, I want you to hear, and then I want you to go back, go get your journals, check it out for yourself. And you tell me that you read the whole passage and in its context, and you say it's a passage about homosexuality. It is not a passage about homosexuality. There's a description of it. God speaks to it as an illustration, but it is not what the passage is about. And I want to say first of all to some of you who are here this morning, who may struggle with same-sex attraction. I am glad you're here. I'm confident that I can speak for the elders of our church. We are glad you are here. We would want for you to feel at home, to sit week after week under the teaching of God's word, and for God to be at work in your life as he is in our life because none of us are finished products. I know that the church worldwide 
and many Christians have made you feel that you are something less than an image bearer of God or certainly less than those of us whose sins we don't think are a problem. We have made you feel alienated, helpless, and alone. And what you need to hear is that your struggle is no worse than my struggle or the struggle of anyone else who is in this church. But secondly, I need to say this. While your sin is no greater than any of our sin, and it's evident in the context, and everyone needs to go back and look at this, there's an illustration after the second time of God giving people over to their own desires, and then he says afterwards, and he gives this whole list of things that I would say is a pretty safe bet that's going to hit every one of us here. Something's going to hit every one of us that is here. And it's not an exhaustive list. It's an illustration of a list that is just a, you know, a shotgun approach. It's, it's the buckshot. It's going to hit everybody somewhere. And God doesn't say that this one is greater than the others. In fact, there are some Bible scholars who would say that the steps here, that the, the three is a progression of depravity. And so, therefore, the height of the depravity is not the homosexuality. It is the others. I don't see it as a progression. I see it as God tends to repeat himself because we're kind of dense. So he's going to say it once, illustrate it. He's going to say it a second time, illustrate another thing. He's going to say it a third time, and boom, here comes the buckshot so that we all finally, finally get it. But with that understanding that that sin, your struggle, is no greater than my struggle, it is sin. But we as the Church of Jesus Christ need to understand this. Homosexuality and an LGBTQ agenda is not the biggest problem of our world. Climate change is not the biggest problem facing our world. Neither Donald Trump nor Nancy Pelosi are the biggest problem facing our world. What Paul says here is that sin is the biggest problem that is facing our world. And if sin is the biggest problem facing our world, then the gospel is good news indeed. If sin is not the biggest problem facing our world, then the gospel is not the answer. But God, speaking through the Apostle Paul here, is saying sin is the biggest problem in the world. It expresses itself in many, many ways. It's destructive for those who experience it, and it's destructive for those who are around. It ultimately is destroying the cultures that we live in, that is the biggest problem of the world. And he says this that is bad news, good news. At the end of this thing, verse 32, at the end of this passage, for though they knew God's decree to those who practice such things, they deserve to die. Our sins, Paul will later on say, our sins, the wage of sin is death. This is, I got good news and I got bad news for you. Here's the bad news. You deserve to die, I deserve to die. Here's the good news. You deserve to die, and I deserve to die. But we don't always get what we deserve. We don't have to get what we deserve. 
And again, I have good news and I have bad news. This passage is bad news against the backdrop. Now go back and see exactly what Paul was speaking, what Ben preached on last week that we see in verses uh, 16 and 17. It is the declaration of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. No matter what, where you find yourself on that list, it is the power of God for salvation. And it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. And so it is by, appropriated by believing. And as it is written, the righteous will live by faith, not by rules we make up or even the rules that God has given. We will live by believing in Jesus Christ. I am good news and bad news. The bad news is you deserve to die and you don't have an excuse. The good news is God is love more than we know. He has sent his son to take the wrath of God poured out upon himself in our place that whoever believes in him shall experience salvation and the power of life so that you won't get what you deserve. You will get an experience God created you for. Holy God, we thank you for this word, hard though it is, Pray that we do have ears to hear and hearts to receive so that we may have eyes to see your glory embodied in Jesus who is our hope and our salvation. Bless us in this and enable us to proclaim it to one another and to a world who is as much in need of it as we are this morning. To you we pray in Christ.